Well, good morning, everybody. Man, it was a good set today, isn't it? Just, man, it's good to sit for worship. Uh, we had a team who was, uh, got stuck. They were on their way to Haiti. Uh, sorry, they were back from Haiti, and they got stranded in Florida. And uh, so they took a vacation after their mission trip. And uh, I don't know if you call that airport and a hotel room a vacation. But because of that, we were scrambling to get some tech workers today and even people in kids and ministry. And I just want to say thanks to the church. For those of you who stepped up, filled in, I know it was an exhausting, crazy morning for you. And I just want to say thanks. I love our church. We have a great church. We had uh, uh, roughly 300 people sign up last week. I'll talk more about that later. And had 100 people show up yesterday to just clean various KCS classrooms. I worked on our playground, getting it cleaned up. Just did a fantastic work here. Man, that's a good church. So what, normally this is the point I'd be funny and fail miserably and then move on anyway. So rather than try to be funny, I'm going to jump right into today's message. I'm going to invite you to grab a Bible. There might be one in front of you if you're sitting in one of the chairs down here. If you're up top, it might be underneath you, depending on where you're seated. And uh, if you don't want to grab a paper Bible because you're like, what is paper? I don't, is that, I don't know what people do with that anymore. You can download our app real quick from whatever your app store is, or you can just watch the screen. But we're going to be living in John chapter 12 uh, for a while this morning. And so as you're turning to John 12, if you don't know where that is, no stress, no stress at all. We'll have it on the screen. I'm going to cover where we've been. So <clears throat> right at the beginning of this kind of chapter, Jesus tells his disciples, go get me a donkey. You're going to find it over here. This guy's going to have it, and he'll let you use it. And what's going on is it's Passover. There's a guy named Josephus. He's, follow this if you can. He's a Jewish man hired by the Romans to write history on behalf of Rome. So because he's Jewish, he writes about some Jewishy things as well, and he writes about Romany things, and I made up both those words. But he writes lots of things down for you to capture. And one of the things he tells us is that uh, Passover at the time that he was writing, which is just shortly after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, is about 2.7 million Jews who would go into Jerusalem for Passover. So that tells us that around the time of Jesus, when it was Passover, there were probably two and a half to three million people in the city at that time. Just to give you an idea, that's a lot of people. By, by today's standards, that would probably be small if you count, you know, Hong Kong or New York or wherever. But by then, that, those were massive, massive numbers. And there was a buzz about Jesus. People had heard that he was healing the blind, the lame, the deaf. People had heard literally that he had raised Lazarus from the dead and word was getting out. Now, this is huge. When Jesus rose Lazarus, rose Lazarus from the dead, raised, risen, when he brought Lazarus back, anyway, <laughs> grammar has never been my gift. When he did that, it'd be one thing if Jesus were to say to his friends, hey, I want you to get the word out that, you know, I've rose this guy from the dead. No, no, no. There were people there who didn't even believe in him. They weren't disciples. They didn't follow him. And so the word from those people went out like, I watched this guy raise somebody from the dead. And so now there's people coming from all over the place into the city for Passover, and they hear Jesus is coming in. This donkey's brought in. He gets on the donkey. Everybody's grabbing palm branches. They're laying him down in front of him, and they're all yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save us, God save us. And literally, it implies God save us now. And the whole thing is Jesus is coming into the city and all of his people are waiting for him. And he's coming in like a king. Roman rulers would do this, usually not on a donkey. Usually they'd come in uh, on their horse after winning a big war and they'd come in and people would lay down branches and they'd sing songs. And this was a triumphal entry, but Jesus's triumphal entry, it looks a little different. It's wrought with humility 
He's riding on a donkey instead of a powerful white horse. And this is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. It actually says he'll do this. This king will come in righteousness, but he's also coming in humility. And so there's a point to all of this. It's driving somewhere. Now that's where we're going to pick up because all of this is happening when we pick up John 12, verse 17. John 12, verse 17. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the dead, raising him, or sorry, from the tomb, raising him from the dead. And they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him because they'd heard about this miraculous sign. Okay, so what we're about to do is we just got introduced to group number one. As I tell you all the time, you have to do detective work. Don't just read your Bible to read it. Read your Bible to understand why the author is telling you this. So there's all these different layers of Bible study. A lot of people get hung up on Greek and Hebrew words, and then they start fighting with other Christians because they say, well, this word means this. And you're missing the point, the reason the author even used those words. And so I share words, but I share them to help you understand why is the author using them. And if you zoom out from the word, you kind of look at the sentence. And every word only makes sense in a sentence. And then you look at that sentence in the chapter. And you look at that chapter in the picture of those chapters around it. And that inside the book. And then inside that author. What else did that author read or write? What else do they talk about? And then you look at that book in light of the fact, are we in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Then you look at that in light of the entire scriptures. And if you kind of look at it, you can zoom out. And you can look and stop at different layers and go, okay, what's going on here and why is it happening? And if you do that here and you don't get hung up on a word or on a sentence, there's a story inside the story. Plot number one, there's a whole bunch of people buzzing about Jesus and they're really excited about him. And they've gathered because they heard that he rose Lazarus from the dead. But here's group number two, ready? Group number two, verse 19. Then the Pharisees said to each other, now, there's nothing we could do. Look, everybody's gone after him. Like, what in the world is going on here? Now, most of the time when you read your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to come across this word Pharisees, and you ought to just go, hiss. Ready? Let's try. Then the Pharisees, <laughs> I didn't even get it out. I started laughing. Because the last service I did this, I forgot, and then at the end of my sermon, I read a passage, and it says Pharisees, everybody started hissing, and I was like, I'm going to regret that the rest of my life, aren't I? All right. These group, this group of men is often, often, I didn't say their name, often the bad guys in the text. Why? Because the Pharisees, all right, are so <laughs> puffed up on themselves. They're prideful, they're arrogant. There's nobody more moral than them. There's nobody who gives more money away than them. There's nobody who has more knowledge about the Bible than them. There's nobody better. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, if you want to make it into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must surpass them. Well, that's a big statement, Jesus, because nobody's more righteous than them, and that's Jesus' point. Everybody needs a savior, including those guys. And these guys are getting really jealous because Jesus' ministry is growing. People are starting to want to see him and want something to do with him, and they're following him. They're worshiping him as Messiah, and all this attention is going away from them, and they're not happy. And here's the thing that blows me away about Pharisees. I'll just be honest. Maybe I'm too honest sometimes. I don't know. Sometimes I read my Gospels, and I think I relate with them too much. Now, most of us read the Gospels, and we think, those idiots but if we read closer, sometimes we go, those idiots kind of sound like me. Sometimes harsh or judgmental. Sometimes unforgiving, thick-headed, don't get it. 
Now, just to be clear, many Pharisees actually come to faith in Jesus, and many don't. So as we read the Gospels, we're recognizing this group, and there's a question to be asked. Do I look like them, or do I look like Jesus? But now we're going to be introduced to group number three. Verse 20. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and Galilee. And they said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Let's just stop there. Okay. So we got a group of Greeks. Why is that important? You can go back to the other verse. Why is it important that we have a group of Greeks? Well, number one, in that day, there were only two groups of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. You fit into one of those two camps. If you were a Jew, you were part of the national Israel, this group that God had called by Abraham and said, I'm going to bring a blessing to all nations through you. If you were a Gentile, you were not a Jew. Those are basically your only two camps. So you and I, for the most part, there's an exception here today, uh, most of us would be um, Gentiles, except for that we've placed our faith in Jesus, so now we're spiritual Jews or something. We'll get to that some other day. Anyway, the whole point here is a bunch of Greeks, so these are Gentiles who specifically are Greek Gentiles. So there might be different kinds of Gentiles. In fact, there are two kind of categories of Gentiles. There's the proselyte, in other words, a a Gentile who'd been converted to Judaism, literally got baptized into Judaism. In fact, they'd have to get baptized over and over and over again, but there's an initial baptism. If they're a man, they'd have to be circumcised. Yikes. And they become practicing Jews. So they go to the temple, they do all the Jewish festivals and all the Jewish things. These are most likely the other camp, and that would be God-fearing Gentiles. So this would be like maybe the centurion that Jesus meets and and heals his son, maybe like uh, Cornelius in the book of Acts. So these are a group of Gentiles who've come to knowledge about God. They've not converted to Judaism, but they honor God, they respect God in their hearts and sometimes with their money and with their actions. And so this group, when they say they want to meet Jesus, you can go to the next verse, when they say they want to meet Jesus, literally the word there in Greek, the word there is we want to interview him. And this isn't like they got a camera, nobody had cameras. This is like, we want to look into who he is and what's he about. We want to know more. So Philip's response, look at verse 22. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. And you're like, again, most of us, our daylight quiet time would read right past that verse, wouldn't you? Like it was no big deal. Okay, so Philip went and grabbed his homie Andrew, and they moved on. No, no, why did Philip need to go to Andrew? Did you ever stop and ask these questions? Why is Philip going to Andrew? Didn't Philip, he's a disciple just like Andrew, didn't he have all the authority? Couldn't he have gone to Jesus on his own? There's a reason. So if you were to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find this. Jesus didn't go to the Gentiles. Jesus went to the Jews. Jesus was adamant about not going to Gentiles. In fact, in one story in the book of Mark, he ends up in Gentile territory, and a Gentile woman comes up to him, and she says, says, my uh, child is full of a demon, it's full of an evil spirit, will you help me? And Jesus says, no, dogs aren't welcome at the table. Oh, wow, I preached on that some other time, that's not today's text. And she looks at Jesus and says, yeah, but don't dogs get scraps from the table? And he says, good answer, your child is healed. What's going on there? Well, Jesus is saying what Philip clearly picked up on, at least at this time, Philip maybe didn't get the whole picture, but Jesus didn't go to Gentiles. That wasn't the goal. Did Jesus hate Gentiles? No. How do we know? 
Well, because when we get to the end of Matthew in the beginning of Acts, Jesus is crystal clear, now go to the end of the world. So when we put all of this together, again, if you zoom out, zoom out, zoom out, look at the other books, what else is going on? What we know is Jesus is going to go to the Gentiles, but not yet. How's he going to get to the Gentiles? Well, that's actually his answer to Philip's question. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 23. Jesus replies, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I will tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. And at this point, Philip looked at Jesus and went, so no? I mean, you know how this is, right? Like, you go to your spouse, you're like, hey, baby, honey, sweetie doll. I was thinking maybe Friday we'd, uh, you know, get a babysitter and we'd, you know, stay downtown overnight and go see a movie. And, well, I've got to do this and I've got to do that and I've got all these plans. I've got this thing and they've got this thing I'm saying. As long as we're back by, so is that a yes or a no? That's kind of how this feels, right? Philip and Andrew now, hey, we got these Greek people. They'd like to meet you and ask you some questions, Jesus. We don't, what do you want us to tell them? Well, the Son of Man must die. And you know, if you take a kernel and you plant it in the ground and it dies, it'll raise up. That was so good. I'll, I'll tell them. Man, Jesus, why do you have to tell all these parables? Okay, now let's go through verse by verse. Because when you dig into what Jesus is saying, you ask questions, what does he mean? Oh, man. Take a look. Look at verse 23. Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. We're in chapter 12 of the book of John. I didn't look. I think there's 27. I can't remember. 28 chapters, whatever there is, in the book of John. We're basically halfway through. And we're already at what we call the passion of Christ. The passion of Christ is the last week of Jesus' life before the death, burial, and resurrection. Why is that important? Because for John, everything leading up to this point, chapters up through 11 or so, everything is to point to the last week. John's book is different than what we call the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are basically telling the story of history. And so you can line them up and literally see the order of how things progress. John is the last gospel written possibly three decades after Jesus. And he's looking back and he's telling a story. And the story he's telling, yes, he's getting some things sequentially, some other things, but he's building to this last week. Everything is about this last Weak. That's what's important to him. Because he wants you to know this is the climax of everything Jesus did. And we're there is basically what Jesus is saying. Everything that I've done, everything you've heard me say, everything you've watched has been about what's unfolding in front of us. The donkey, the hosannas, the Passover, all of it, all of it is the focus. Why? Because I'm about to die. Now the disciples, even Philip and Andrew, when Jesus gave them this answer, would have been like, we don't know what that means yet. They're still thinking king on a throne. I mean, he just rode in on a donkey. Everybody's rallied around this dude. We're about to take out the establishment, and we're about to take out Rome. This is go, 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 Jesus. Jesus says, no, the time has come, but it's not what you think it is. Look at the next verse. He goes further. Verse 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? I don't know anything about farming. Like, I'm bad. Everything I plant just about dies. So I had to go Google kernels of wheat. 
And pretty much what I learned is a kernel of wheat is a seed. But I think I got that much out of the text, so I didn't learn much. And I saw a picture about what a kernel of wheat looks like, but it was really not helpful. But here's what I learned. So if you take a wheat stalk and it grows up and, it, and, it, and it's healthy, out of it come many little seeds. And you can always cook those or eat those or do something with those. Or you could take one and replant it. And if you replant it, it'll grow an entire new stalk that will produce a whole bunch of more seeds. And if you take them and you plant them, they'll produce a whole bunch of new stalks. Do you get what Jesus is saying yet? The analogy that Jesus is getting to is this. My life is like a seed. If there are 2.7 million Jews at Passover, how many more Gentiles all over the face of the earth? How many Jews who weren't able to make it for health reasons or lack of funds to be able to get to Jerusalem for Passover? How many people don't yet have the gospel? If it's Jesus and the world, there's a whole bunch of people going to hell because they're never going to meet him. And so Jesus looks at Philip and Andrew and says, no, I cannot go and talk to them right now because my mission is to go to the cross. That's the mission the Father has given me. But after my life gets planted in the ground and dies, I'm going to raise up a stock and I'm going to make a whole bunch of little me's. They're going to die plant themselves in the ground and raise up a bunch of whole new stocks. That's me and that's you. And it may seem like a weird answer to a very simple question, but it's actually a beautiful answer because what Jesus is saying is, if I die, lots of people will live. But if I live, lots of people will die. And then you start to go, oh, wow, Jesus. That's beautiful. Look at the next verse, verse 25. But now he takes it from his life and he makes it about your life and my life. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. And those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. It's kind of a confusing statement, isn't it? But Jesus is being crystal clear. If you want to hold on to that kernel, guess what happens? Nothing. If you hold on to your life, nothing. So if you're more consumed about getting more, if you're more consumed about your joy, your peace, your happiness here, and your focus isn't on heaven, your focus isn't on eternity, your focus isn't on the life that is to come, then what's going to happen is you're actually going to lose all these things you're holding on to. Why? Because you can't take any of them with you when you die. You ever been to a funeral? How many houses or cars or pairs of clothing or shoes or bank accounts go with them? I mean, sure, you could put them in, but they're just going to get stuck in the ground. And Jesus is trying to get to this point. He's saying, look, what I'm trying to reproduce is me. And if you want to be like me, then live like me. Literally, put your life in the ground too. Be willing to give up whatever it takes to follow after me. And then he gets to verse 26 and he says, and anybody who wants to serve me must follow me. What do you mean there, Jesus? Verse 26, if you want to serve me, you got to follow me. Another point, Jesus says, anybody who wants to follow me must be willing to take up their cross and follow me. We don't get that today. 
That's like totally foreign to us. We get a bad parking spot in the rain and we go, ugh, it's my cross to bear. <laughs> oh, these shoes were on huge sale and they don't have my size. That's all right, Lord. My focus isn't on this world. It's my cross to bear. Maybe if we crucified you in those shoes on top of your car in the rain, you'd have a story to tell. What Jesus is trying to get to here is he's saying, you want to be with me? you got to follow me. Jesus says over and over and over again, I want you to count the cost, count the cost, consider it. Because we've created in America this easy uh, salvationism. And, and, and I'm not saying salvation is something you need to earn, but it's, it's easy. It's like, you know, pray this prayer, you know, go get baptized, give your lives to Christ, whew, you're in. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 understand what you're in. You're in a kingdom where I'm going to look at you and say, die. Be willing to give up whatever the Father asks. Why? For his glory. And if you're willing to do that, he says, you'll be where I am. And the Father will honor anybody who serves me. So if you just go back and look at verses 24 to 26, there's four really hard sayings in here. So verse 24, you don't have to put it up there, but verse 24, it says, the grain of wheat must die. Verse 25, Jesus calls us to hate our lives in this world. Verse 26, Jesus calls us to follow him, which would literally be to a cross. And then in verse 26 again, he calls us to serve him, to do his bidding, his will, his purposes. That's what you're being called to as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You need to think twice before you say yes, okay? Don't think three times, but you need to think twice. And why? Because this is huge. We're not being called just to say, whew, I'm in heaven. I got my get out of hell free card. It's called Jesus. No, no, no. We're called to say, I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth by how I live my life. And just in case you think it's really easy, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes clear how hard this is. So if somebody comes up to you and says, walk with me one mile, don't do one, you do two. But Jesus, I had other plans that day. I don't care. Your whole life is to be spent on the glory of God. If somebody hits you on one cheek, you go ahead and turn to them the other. But that's not fair, Jesus. We're not talking about fair. I'm not concerned with fair. The cross of Jesus Christ wasn't fair. I'm calling you to live a life for the glory of God, to leverage every moment and every time for God's glory, to keep asking, how do I bring you glory here? What would it take to make your name great here? How do we be faithful here? This is why we get in the New Testament. We start playing this out. And, and Paul, uh, he starts to flesh this out. We got Christians in Corinth, and they're suing each other. They're fighting over stuff, and they're angry at each other, and they're suing each other. I mean, like, Christians fighting. Man, who's ever heard of such a thing? Moving on. And so Paul rebukes them. He says, you're an embarrassment to me, and you're an embarrassment to Jesus. Isn't there anybody among you who can discern what's right and what's wrong? You'd be better off to drop the lawsuit and let them win and take everything. Whoa, that don't fly in America. <laughs> Paul says, because what's most important is the glory of God. And what you're doing is compromising his name. Now, friends, did you think when you became a believer, this is what you were signing up for? Because these things are offensive to me. They're hard for me. I'll just say this. If you constantly read your Bible and find God agreeing with you, you might be reading it wrong. And the reason I say that is because, man, when I read it, God offends me all the time. 
That's because he's not trying to make me happy. He's trying to make me holy. And there's a huge difference. I love the way uh, Rick Warren says this. He says, I talk to people all the time who say, I have so much and yet I feel unfulfilled. I've got a good family, I've got a good job, I've got great kids, I've got good friends, I've got a good congregation to be a part of. Why am I so unfulfilled? It's because you were made for more than this. You were made for more than survival. You will never find fulfillment in life until you begin to live in God's kingdom, by God's power, and for God's glory. Love those last three. In God's kingdom, by God's power, for God's glory. In God's kingdom. The moment you come to him, surrender, say, I can't save myself, I can't fix myself, and I desperately need you. We get to that place. Now, by God's power, we can serve. See, apart from this, when we try to serve and do things for God, what we find is we really just end up doing good things to make ourselves feel better. We end up doing good things to make other people like us more. But when we're in God's kingdom, by God's power, doing great things for him, what happens is we make his name great instead of our name great. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, he says this, for everything, everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. Wow, it's almost like Rick Warren took, took that right from there. All glory to him forever, amen. So what does this look like? At the end of the day, your job, my job, we win. We win if we become like Jesus. So we read our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I encourage you to read at least one a year. And as you read those Gospels, you see Jesus doing something, you just do it. You don't have to get it. You don't have to understand it. But, man, Jesus did it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to walk in his footsteps and his teachings. That doesn't mean you should find Pharisees and curse them and yell at them because Jesus is Jesus. You might want to skip that one. But... I want to show you what this looks like as we continue through John. Now jump to John 13, the very next passage, because Jesus clarifies a little bit. He doesn't just leave you hanging. John chapter 13, verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. You've got to hang on to this. This is so rich. It's going to make so much sense in a minute. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Man, what, what did we just learn there? John wants you to know Jesus was faithful to his disciples. He loved them. Even though he's telling them it's going to get hard for you, everything they did to me, they're going to do for you. While in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. That's coming in a couple chapters. He says that. And literally here, we're, he loved them all the way to the very, very end. He gave up his own life for his friends. Next verse, verse 2. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Why is that important? But because here's Jesus saying he loved his disciples to the end, and one of them is going to betray Jesus. Because even though his earthly father is uh, Simon Iscariot, uh, his real father is the devil. And he's not on God's plan. He's on somebody else's plan, Satan's. But then we get to verse 3. Love this. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and he would return to God. 
In other words, Jesus knows this is the end. He knows he's gonna die. He knows his life is a seed that has to be planted in the ground. He knows he's gonna be stabbed in the back in the ultimate betrayal of one who should have known his love the best and yet his absolute confidence isn't in this earth. His absolute confidence is right there. He has total trust that everything's gonna work out. Why? Because he came from God and he's going right back to God. So everything in between those doesn't matter. In other words, if we'll follow the example of Christ, it doesn't matter what happens in this world because you know where you're going. You know where your hope is. You know where your trust is. You know where your confidence is. And you can hang on to heaven. You can hang on to the cross and say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, because I know where ultimately this is going. And so because of that, look at what Jesus does. Verse 4. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, And he poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around him. You may be thinking, what in the world is going on here? Well, in that day, in agricultural society, uh, most people didn't get around by cars. Most people didn't get around by motorcycles or bicycles or skateboards or roller skates. Usually, people got around by walking, riding a donkey, a horse. That was pretty much your options. If you were really, really wealthy and you were a Roman maybe governor, you might have a chariot. But for the most part, it was walking, running, skipping, and horses. That was about it. Maybe a donkey or two. This is important because almost everybody had sweaty, stinky feet. Not like you. I mean really sweaty, stinky feet. And many times they were covered in animal droppings. So before you would enter a house, there was almost always a master in a wealthy home, and he would have a servant, or literally a slave. Don't think American slavery. You need to think slavery that day. It was an indentured servitude most of the time. There was a debt incurred, and in order to pay off the debt, they worked in this person's home along with their other jobs. And so the master would tell the slave, or tell the servant, here, go clean up for dinner, for dinner or go wash my guest's feet. They're coming in the house. And Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, puts a towel on, grabs a basin of water, puts or basin to put in water, puts the water in, and he gets on his knees. So the king, who was just riding on a donkey, worshiped and praised for all of his power and might and fulfillment of prophecy, says, let me show you what it means to be a king in the kingdom of God. And he becomes a slave to his disciples. And then... He gets to Peter, verse 6. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing. Someday you will. And Peter, because he's a lot like your pastor, he speaks first, thinks second. Verse 8, no, Peter protested. You will never, ever wash my feet. Now, in the Greek, this is about as emphatic as we can make it in English. It is emphatic. The best we could do is double and never, ever put an exclamation point. This is Peter saying, never, uh-uh, in all eternity. You're the king. I should be washing your feet. No way. And Jesus puts Peter in his place. Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. What's Jesus saying? You want to be in my kingdom? You need to let me serve you. What? What person with position and power and authority, the position, the power and authority of heaven says the only way you get in my kingdom is you let me serve you. 
Jesus says that. Peter gets what he's saying and totally doesn't get what he's saying. And next, Peter goes, well, don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. Wash me from head to toe. In my translation, Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, would you just be quiet? (laughs) It's not really what he says. Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, somebody who's already been washed, bathed, doesn't need their whole body bathed again. In other words, look, you've come into the kingdom. You've already been baptized by my teachings, by my word. You've already been united with me in this way. You don't need me to do that for you again. Peter, you need to know that I'm serving you. Doesn't it bring up a great question, why? Jesus tells us, John chapter 13, verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and he sat down and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Nobody sitting at the table went and grabbed the basin of water and the towel and started washing each other's feet. In fact, I've got a bunch of church history books. If you want to read them sometime, let me know. Throughout church history, we do not see foot washings becoming an important part of the church. Now, we've done foot washings here, smaller environments. I think one time, even in a bigger room, we did it. We've done it before. But nowhere in church history do we see, like, foot washings coming alongside of communion and baptism, which every church has practiced since Jesus left the earth. Why? Because Jesus wasn't saying literally wash each other's feet. He's saying, watch my example and become just like me. The whole goal for us as a church is not to just do If you do too much, you can become a Pharisee, puffed up in your righteousness and all the things that you've done, and you could proclaim your goodness before everybody. But if you want to become one with your father, then you become one with Jesus, and then you do. It's a heart issue. Because I love Jesus, because I let Jesus serve me, I'm going to go serve others. I'm going to wash their feet. Look at the next thing it says, verse 15. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. In other words, I served you. You want to become like me? Go serve. You want to become like me? Do what I've done. This is huge, friends. So some of you have been playing Christian and playing church for weeks, months, possibly even decades. Jumping through hoops, going through motions, checking a box. I read my Bible. I I gave my life to Christ. I even got baptized. I even went to church 12 times this year. Maybe even you could say 52 times this year. But Jesus doesn't have your heart. And how do I know? Because are you wrestling with the teachings of Jesus in such a way that you say, am I like Christ in this way. So I started wrestling with God last fall. Um, I, I started reading the book of Acts with the men's group, and I found out I wasn't clear last week, so I'm going to make this clear. And uh, I got to Acts chapter 1, very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, and Jesus says this, I'm going to put the Holy Spirit inside you, and when the Holy Spirit is inside you, he's going to then send you out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. 
And most of you, you've heard that before because you've been a Christian, but you have no idea what that means. So let me show you a map real quick. Here's what the, that day looked like. So this is the map of the area. I did not put these colorful, cool lines on here. That's probably about as good as I could do, but I didn't do it. So this little black line here, I know it's hard to see. It says Jerusalem. This is the city of Jerusalem. Jesus and his ministry began in Jerusalem. The apostles began in Jerusalem. Almost all of them, read the book of Acts, started in Jerusalem. But as things got more intense, people started to go out from Jerusalem. Then you take Judea here, and Judea was the area around Jerusalem. So part of what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, I'm going to have you go be me in Jerusalem. And then after that, you're going to go be me in Judea. And then you're going to come up here to Samaria. That's this red circle here. And Samaria is, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, they're half-breeds. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, like literally hated each other. And part of it is the Samaritans were Jews who had married into the Gentile, uh, they'd interbred, so you got Jews and Gentiles married, and it totally compromised the Old Testament laws, the moral code. They were totally living not according to God's laws, at least the way a Jewish person would describe that. And so literally, Jews would go around Samaria. They wouldn't even go through Samaria to get to these other places. Jesus says, that's done, that's over. In fact, okay, I didn't say this in any other service. I don't really have time to say it. I'm gonna say it anyway. So when Paul talks about the veil of hostility being torn down, in the ancient Jewish temple, you couldn't even go into certain places. Whether you were a Gentile or a Gentile convert or a Samaritan, you couldn't even go in. Only a Jewish person could go in. Why? Because there was this wall of hostility. And when Jesus came and he tore the veil in two, he opened up the path all the way into the Holy of Holies so that it didn't matter if you were a man or woman, old or young, Samaritan or Gentile or Jewish person, you could go right into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. And this is a message that Jesus says must get out. It's gotta get out all the way to the ends of the earth. So, as we started praying and talking as a church, the elders and, and Billy and Brad and then many staff pitched in. There's so many people to give credit to. We started saying, what if we followed this pattern? What if we put together a way for Kingsway to just follow this from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth? And as we started doing that, last week we launched this. What we've said is, I'm asking all Kingsway people to step into becoming like Christ, to serve here at Kingsway. Last hour, I was just told we had 17 preschoolers and only two workers. I'm not even sure I should say that publicly. I'm not sure it's legal. We need some of you to step up and say, you know what? I love kids. I love kids. And we want people who are far from God, when they show up here on the corner of 10th and Dan Jones at our little Jerusalem, the Kingsway Christian School and Kingsway Christian Church, we want them to know there's a safe place where they're going to be loved. We want them to know that we care for them, and they'll see it. The moment they walk in, they're going to feel it by the way we care for them and meet their needs. They're not going to show up and have a terrible experience, or the kids are going to be miserable, and they're going to show up and go, I don't even agree with these people. They're weird, but boy, did they love me. And next week, I'll talk about what Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth are. And as you leave here today, you're going to have the opportunity. You're going to see all these things set up out here to stop and say, God, where do you want me? Where do you want me? I've got a gift of hospitality. I just love having people over and making food and cleaning up after them. You're weird, but God has gifted you with that. Man, I just, I love being generous. I just love looking at all my stuff saying, how do I give it away to help other people? I love being an encourager. I love to just sit down and write notes to people and build them up when they're going through a hard season. I love to teach, man. I just, I'm hungry for God's word, and I love to just tell other people what I've been learning. 
What is it that God has uniquely gifted you for so that here on the corner of 10th and Dan Jones, which is where we're focusing right now, you could pour out what God has poured into you? Because come back now, look at John chapter 13 again. I want you to look at verse 15, John 13, 15. I have given you an example to follow, so do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now, look at verse 17, John 13, 17. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. How many of you think that God knows how to bless really, really good? Jesus says, you parents, you know how to bless. Your kid asks for bread, you don't hand them stone. If God is a good father, and we think he is, then who can out-bless than him? And so he says, you want blessed? Serve like Jesus. I'll close with this. John chapter 15, John chapter 15, verse 14. Jesus says this, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now, get this. What Jesus is saying here, see, the master didn't tell the slave what he was telling him to do. He said, go clean the kitchen. Go wash those feet. Go prune those bushes. That's what the master did. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. See, you're not slaves you aren't just out there doing the bidding because, well, I don't know, but the Father just wants me to go. No, 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 no. You know exactly what my Father is up to in the world. He loves the world. He wants to give up Jesus' life so that everybody can know, which will require you to love him more than this world. You know exactly what he's doing in the world. So he's saying, now go, because you're not a slave. You're a friend, because I've told you everything the Father told me. Then he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you, and I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. And then he says, this is my command. Love each other. All right, I'm gonna pray for, I guess we don't have the last verse, for that very last verse to become true in us today. I'm gonna pray for us to truly love each other as we leave. Todd will tell you how, but I'm just challenging you to think about how can you plug into loving other people here, whether it's a service project over the next couple weeks or serving at Kingsway. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for loving us by serving us and in doing so, giving us an example of how to love you. Father, as we go out from this place today, may we go out in your power and in your strength for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.